Our New Testament reading for this morning comes from 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning I'm, I'm happy to announce uh, that the Dorianis are with us. And uh, I just wanted to introduce Dan Doriani to some of you. I think most of you know him, but uh, just to give you a little background, Dan's been at uh, Covenant Seminary as a professor. Been there for a long time, I want to say since the early 90s, and then was pastor at Central Presbyterian Church for 10 years. And then when that was finished, he went back to uh, the seminary. And uh, just my own little personal testimony for myself. When I got to um, Covenant Seminary, so I left a full-time job in California. I had some savings and I came to St. Louis. And a lot of times when people come to seminary, they have a church that is supporting them financially. And I didn't have that, so I had some small savings. I came here without a job, sort of just following God's leading uh, and calling and got to seminary. And I think my first semester I had Dan for um, Reformation and Modern Church History. And I remember feeling this feeling like, I like this guy. I just, I just connected with him, the way, the way he taught, the way he spoke, and he spoke frankly. I didn't feel like there was a lot of, um, uh, there was a lot of, you know, kind of doublespeak. I felt like he spoke uh, forthright and was honest. And it's comforting to be in the presence of someone who speaks honestly. And I also perceived him to be a defender of the word of God and of our tradition. And that really, that really gave me a sense of confidence and comfort and uh, since that time, we've been friends, and God has used him. I just say this as a, as a testimony. God has used him uh, as an instrument of provision and grace. In fact, some of you don't know this, but it was through Dan that I came to this church. So the elders who had a relationship with Dan consulted with him when uh, our church was in a transition. And so it was God using Dan that brought me to this church. So I'm incredibly grateful for not only his, but Debbie's friendship uh, to me and my family and this church. So let's, re- let's receive him uh, at this time. Well, it's, uh, it's nice to be here. And some of you would know that I preached over in the dark place for a few times. <laughs> which, uh, I don't know, I'm just glad you're here. It feels so much more like a church. And I like windows. Who likes windows? All right, that's great. Um, And I'm also thankful just to be part of this uh, little series. Uh, Jordan and I actually met a few months ago, I don't know, two, two, three months ago, to, uh, we just get together sometimes, and we talked about the series on Proverbs, and he said, well, why don't you come be part of it? So I'm glad to be part of it and to be speaking on marriage. That's what I, I was assigned. I'm a man under authority, and I was assigned to speak on marriage. So in a second, you're going to have some scriptures up on the, on the screen, 
and I have them up on the wall, and, and this is God's Word. So there's a main text, but I'm going to be surveying a number of passages of the Bible, and the first one is about love in marriage, and it goes like this. This is God's Word. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? No, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? That's our first scripture. Then there are a few others in the book of Proverbs. One says this, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. It's too bad that has to be said, but it does have to be said. And then a counter proverb, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Just a quick comment, when it says finds a wife, it implies that you know, it's not always easy to get a good spouse. And you think you got a good one, but then you later on think maybe you made a mistake, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. And then Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage actually points to Christ and to the church. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, this church. I thank you for everybody who's part of worship and part of the community here, we ask that you would bless them um, in all their life, including their married life, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So you're also gonna get a quick summary of, um, of where we're going, and this, this is not gonna last. So this is like a one-minute forecast for those of you who like to know what's coming. We're gonna talk about the nature of marriage first, and secular concepts first, and then biblical concepts that largely come from Proverbs chapter two. And then we're gonna talk about good and bad spouses, mostly good, but we have to face the difficult part, and then we'll talk about love in marriage. That's what we're doing. So let's just talk a little bit about the state of marriage in our society today. Did you know that 41% of all babies are born outside of wedlock in America? I did not say 41% of all first babies. I said 41% of all babies are born outside of marriage. That's because so many people have kind of given up on marriage. They never get married. Or maybe they have a baby and think it over. Maybe we should get married after all. Furthermore, people find that the number of divorces is about 40 to 50%. People used to say 50%, now they say 40. It seems like maybe there's a slightly lower number of marriages ending divorce, but the sad part is that's because so many people who are iffy about marriage never get married at all. They just live together indefinitely. And about half of all adults, 18 and above, are not married today. 40 years ago, it was 72%. So more and more people are thinking, maybe I don't want to get married, maybe because the most terrible thing that happened in their life growing up is that their mom and dad got a divorce and they think, I'm never gonna get a divorce. And then it occurs to them that the best way to never get a divorce is never to get married. And so they never get married. They're maybe afraid of commitment as well as fear of things going wrong. Now this of course is in the news, 
My favorite sad story about marriage comes from six years ago when Kim Kardashian, an untalented pseudo actor that very few people have heard of, got married. And she married a very large man. His name was Chris Humphreys. He's six foot 10 and was an NBA power forward or center. And she divorced him. Do you remember this? After 72 days of marriage. And in the divorce statement she issued, she said, you know, irreconcilable differences. For example, I'm, I'm looking at my notes so I can quote this. Um, Twice he stepped on my toes and ruined a new pedicure. She actually cited that. I mean, the guy's six foot ten. Give him a break. He has big feet. I mean, it's not a new development that he has big feet, right? You knew he was big when you married him. I asked on Facebook. Facebook is useful for some things. I asked on Facebook. Why do people care about this? And I, and I got a lot of answers, and several people, I'm gonna say five or six people, basically said the same thing. It gives me a sense of relief that however deranged my life is, other people are worse. So our culture has um, a lot of problems with marriage. We, we live in an age where people don't know how to make sense of marriage. We have a lot of ideas that are out in the culture that affect us that make it harder for us to think well about marriage. One of them is the idea that the perfect spouse is out there and I have to have burning fires of romance with my spouse at all times. And that's what, a, that's what marriage is, is finding the perfect mate and being filled with, with romance at all times. And of course, the soulmate is first of all somebody with whom I'm perfectly compatible and deeply romantically in love. And so we expect Bliss and sparks simultaneously, peace and fire simultaneously, we might say. But, uh, you know, there is no perfect mate out there. there. There are no people that will align with you perfectly because of your sin and your spouse's sin. We understand that. Um, and, and, you know, uh, most spouses have clear-cut problems with them. At a physical level, most men, I'll speak of men, you know, eventually get kind of pudgy and wrinkly and, and bald. And if you were sitting behind me, I have a very large bald spot, which my grandchildren, you know, they say things like, where did your hair go, Papa? And things of that nature. And my poor wife is stuck with a man who has a follicular deficiency at all times, and it's increasing. <laughs> and, then, and then there's the tastes. And I'm not speaking of my marriage, but did you know that there are some men out there that actually have wives who like Justin Bieber. And some, some women, some women think Taylor Smith, Swift makes good music. And how can I love a person who likes Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift? I mean, it's just, how can we do this? And, and he wants to vote for that loathsome politician and she wants to vote for that other loathsome politician. How can we possibly live together in this life. And of course, what we understand, and it was said a long time ago by Martin Luther, um, marriage is a school of character. And when you marry somebody, you learn how to live with a, a blessed kind of adversity. Can I call it that? So, you know, Luther, who was a 37-year-old monk when he got married, said it was kind of alarming to wake up in the middle of the night aware that someone had pulled the covers from me. 
And it was alarming to wake up with pigtails in my face. These are things he had not had to encounter as a monk. And so he had to learn how to love somebody who hurt him in these tiny little ways. And of course, we hurt each other in other ways. One person named Stanley Hauerwas uh, said, said it this way, we always marry the wrong person. Now, why would you say that? He was a Christian theologian. What he meant was people uh, get married and they think, you know, we gotta watch out for the problems we have in marriage, you know, communication or money or intimacy. And, and these are things we have to watch out for. But actually, you really have to watch out for the fact that you're a sinner and she's a sinner. The two biggest problems in marriage are not communication and money. The two biggest problems are the husband and the wife. And, and so we're always marrying someone who's not quite right and also we're not quite right. So in our culture, we start off with this idea that we need to have this always at peace and yet simultaneously very romantic marriage. We, we have this romantic ideal and then after we give up on that, which people usually do eventually, we move over to something that, we've, that we say we don't like. And that's what I'm gonna call the arranged or contractual marriage. And so if I don't have brilliant romance and, and endless happiness, at least we have two incomes and we can you know, divide up the labor and, and she'll take care of the finances and I'll take care of the house and, and you know, we'll have a good life. On the one hand, we go we, to the side, we say, you know, we'd never want to have an arranged marriage. We'd never want to have a marriage made for efficiency like they used to do in other cultures, other places, where mom and dad arrange it and say, this will be a good functional spouse for you. And we would say we'd never want to get married that way, but probably four out of five end up over there eventually. And so we're, we're torn between this romantic ideal and something we think is deficient, but we settle with, and that is the arranged ideal. Does that make sense to you? That's what's in our culture today, I believe. And so, of course, what we have to have is, is a biblical view of marriage. The biblical view begins, really, in chapter two of Proverbs. And I'm gonna turn in my Bible and invite you to turn with me to Proverbs two. But I didn't read this, we didn't read this on the screen. And maybe it's because I want to give it a little bit of emphasis. And while you turn, I'm going to tell you that Proverbs writes a lot about marriage, but it actually writes for a single man. It's a letter from Solomon to his son, who appears to be single. It certainly seems that he's single. Um, and so he's, he's saying a lot of things about uh, sexuality and marriage. And, and the first thing he says is this. He's warning his son about a woman who could tempt them, and he says this in chapter 2.16. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, her flattery. And what does she do? Well, she's actually married, and this tempting woman forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Now those, those two statements, if you're married, you have a companion, and it's a matter of a covenant before God. So our culture says marriage is a flaming hot romance, or maybe it's an arrangement, and God says, no, it's actually a covenant. It's a covenant of companionship, a covenant we make before God. So we're not looking for the perfect romance. We're not looking for the perfect arrangement. We're making a covenant. Now, 
I don't know when you were last at a, at a Christian wedding, but you may remember how weddings go. And I'll just share the vows that I use, which are very similar, I'm sure, to the ones you use, Jordan, and most pastors use. And we have two sets. And the first set is what I call the I do's. And it goes like this. Do you, we'll make it John and Rachel. Do you, John, do you, Rachel, take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? I'll make it John. Take this woman to be your wife. Do you promise to love her and cherish her as long as you both shall live. And the bride and groom say, I do. And to whom do they say that? Well, they say that to each other, I do, but it's also before God and these witnesses. So when you, when you say, I take you, we're taking someone, a person, one person right here, and we're taking our vows in the presence of God and in the presence of the community that'll help us live out together our married life, right? So it's, it's a covenant that is both personal and social and human and divine. It's to one person and it's with the world. And then the vows are focused on each other. I, John, take you, Rachel, to be my lawful wedded husband, or I, Rachel, take you, John, to be my husband, and I do promise and covenant, that's the way I say it, based on Proverbs 2, I promise a covenant before God and these witnesses, again, it's between the two of us, but God's involved, to be your loving and faithful wife in plenty and want and join in sorrow as long as we both shall live. So it's, be, it's a covenant with a person, one person, and in the presence of God while the world watches. That's what covenants are like. They're, they're personal and they're public. They're personal and they're legal. They're personal and we share it and we enter into covenants together. Uh, have you heard the name Bertrand Russell? Anybody here heard her name Bertrand Russell? A few people have. Bertrand Russell's one of the most famous atheists of the last century. And in God's providence, his son, Conrad, was my dissertation advisor when I was getting a PhD. And so I've always kind of had a special interest in Bertrand Russell. His son was famous, but his dad was really famous. And Bertrand Russell is the first person to loudly and clearly say that marriage kills love. He said, all marriage is spontaneous and free. And the minute you take vows, the minute you take marriage vows, you've ruined that. Now, I'm just gonna tell you that his son refused under any circumstances to speak about his father. Those of us who had Conrad Russell in class, and he was our dissertation advisor, would try various ploys to get him to talk about his famous father, and he wouldn't do it. You know why? Because he was a horrible father. You know why he was a horrible father? Because three women talked him into marriage and he hated it every time. He divorced all three and he had innumerable affairs. He didn't keep any promises. He was a genius and he was a terrible, terrible husband and father and by all accounts a terrible friend. Because he wanted to be free and spontaneous which meant I'm not committed to anybody for any reason. Now the sad truth is that this is kind of common in our culture. And it shows up when people cohabit. When people cohabit, they're basically, for a long period of time, they're basically saying, I want the benefits that are available in cohabitation, but I don't love you enough to pledge my life to you. I love you enough to be with you as long as it's convenient. But I don't love you enough to give my life to you, both now and in the future. You're always on trial. We're always asking the question, are you still good enough for me? Are you impressing me enough to keep on living together another three months, six months, nine months, a year, two years? And is this a good transaction for me? In other words, we're still in contractual thinking. 
marriage or relationships are viewed contractually. And, and when you view them contractually, you're not saying, I love you permanently as you are flaws and all. I'm flawed, you're flawed, we love each other, even as God loves flawed, flawed people. G.K. Chesterton, another name you might possibly have heard, um, Christian man, said, you know, when we really love somebody, there's an enormous tendency to make promises to them. We say, I love you, and we say, and I will always love you, for better or for worse. Proverbs speaks of this, but the Song of Solomon does too, and it says this about marriage. It says, place me like a seal over your heart, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench it. Rivers cannot wash it away. That's another statement of abiding and covenantal love. Nothing can stop this love. Now, I'm just gonna say most marriages have a period of time of difficulty. And because divorce is so common, probably most people think at least at some moment about getting a divorce someday, would that be the right thing to do? And uh, people have studied people who are thinking about getting divorced. And there's, a, there's an organization that seems to have some Christian values. It's not an explicitly Christian organization. It's called the American Values Institute, which is part of the University of Chicago, which is you know, not a Christian organization. And they did a long period of study of marriages that ran into trouble. And what they found was that if you have a, a significantly unhappy marriage for a long period of time, 64% of those people actually end up fixing it and being happy. And they really curiously found that in 78% of all very unhappy marriages, very unhappy for you know, like six months or a year, if the counselor said these words, are you willing to give it one more try? 78% of those marriages remained intact and after two years said, we are happier than ever. And this is the result of their research. I'm gonna quote. Many currently happily married spouses have had extended periods of marital unhappiness, often for quite serious reasons, including alcoholism, infidelity, verbal abuse, neglect, depression, and serious illness. Why did these marriages survive when other marriages did not? Their answer is a marital endurance ethic plays a big role. Spouses said that their marriages got happier not because they resolved their problems, because they stubbornly outlasted them. With time, many sources of conflict and distressed ease. And I say, that's covenant. That's God's idea. I will stay with you even as God has stayed with us covenantally when we fail. Living God's way works for marriages. Now, I. I know that not everybody here is married, so just a comment. Number one, this is a word actually from a father to his unmarried son. So Solomon thought everybody, whether married or not, needs to hear about marriage. Um, but the other thing is, even if you're not married, everybody makes promises and vows, and everybody gets into relationships that you may think I want to get out of, or you make promises you don't want to keep. So this, I just want to tell everybody this principle of staying and working and enduring and not giving up is a basic biblical value. Even if you're single and you think you'll always be single, we all need to live lives of covenantal faithfulness. 
faithful to the relationships and the promises that we've made. And again, all this is a reflection of who God is. God said to Israel, and it's quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter six, he said, God says, I swore by myself, surely I will bless you because God's purpose is unchangeable, Hebrews says, he guaranteed it with an oath. That is to say, God swears by himself, he will always be faithful to us. Or you know those occasions when the disciples showed themselves to be dunderheads in the gospels, right? And, and disappointed Jesus, right? He did any number of times. He would say things like, ah, we have no idea what you're talking about, please move on. Or, you know, I know you said it five times, we don't wanna hear it. And at one point in the gospel of Mark, he says, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? He asked that question in Mark. And the answer is, until the cross and the resurrection. That's how long. Jesus is saying as a, as a human and as God, I can't believe how difficult it is to stay with you, but I will stay with you because I love you with an everlasting love. I'll say it a different way. I, about 10 years ago, I officiated at a wedding between two FBI agents who bonded FBI agents have to do things like run three miles in 22 minutes with their gear, you know? So this is a man and a woman, you know, sub eight minute mile in gear with like weapons dangling. Um, but it was easy for them to run three miles because they're both marathon runners. And they actually met and continue for fun, don't ask me to explain this to you, but for fun, they still occasionally run marathons together. So that's an unusual marriage. But I love the analogy. We're in a marathon together. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon we're going to endure. Now, when we do endure, we hear lovely things in the book of Proverbs about marriage. For example, we read earlier that a noble wife is her husband's crown. Isn't that true? A noble wife makes a husband a better, happier man with, with sensible pride, may I say it that way? Not arrogant pride, but with sensible pride. This is the woman in my life, and it makes me a better person to have this woman in my life. A beautiful wife, but I don't mean physically beautiful necessarily, but a beautiful wife in character makes me a better person, personally and in the world. On the other hand, if you marry a contentious woman, it's better to live in the corner of a roof. It says that. And then it also says that a prudent wife is from the Lord, and it says he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Now what those imply is that things can go wrong, and if, if things go right in a marriage, um, it, you've kind of found something. You ever find a deal like you just were going through life and you say, man, what a deal. I got this fantastic shirt for $11. I found a great deal. Or I, I got a car and a huge discount. I found it. And, and it's, you found a noble thing. And God gave it to you. And we have this sense that if things go well, I don't deserve it. And I'm so thankful that God gave me this gift. Again, Stanley Hauerwas says kind of the same thing this way. He says, you know, we never know who we marry. We think we do, but we don't. If we marry the right person somehow, 
in a while, he or she will change. So even if we don't plan to change, marriage itself and life itself will change us, and flaws that were once so little will loom large. And what you have to do, Howard Wass said, is learn to love the stranger you find yourself married to. I think that's a, it's an overstatement, but I think it's really true. You think you know who you marry, you change, your spouse changes, and you love this person who's not exactly the person she was or he was a long time ago. But they're connected to who they were, and I'm connected to who I was, and we're gonna keep on loving each other. Now, there are happier lines about romantic love, which I read first, and, and they talk about, you know, romance, eros in marriage. And it starts off maybe with those words that uh, are spoken in the, in the song of songs, which Solomon also wrote about love. He said, you know, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him I'm faint with love. I'm deeply in love with my partner. And then we read this, you know, drink water from your own sister and running well water from your own well. And, and what that means, those are metaphors for our sexuality and running water and springs of water and drinking water is, is all a, a sort of a gentle, euphemistic way of saying in those days, uh, we have sexual potencies, we have sexual capacities, and we don't, we don't release them in the streets. We don't release our water um, any old place. We release our water, the fountain of life, the source of life, our capacity to have children, we devote that to our husband and to our wife. And that's pleasant and that's good. We, we keep our sexuality and marriage and escape the trap and the danger of adultery. And it's pleasant. And it says, it says we, there is a morally permissible ecstasy of love. It says, may your wife, wife's breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. And the word captivated actually means drunk usually. What it really says is, may you be drunk with love. Now, you did not hear me advocating drunkenness, but something akin to being carried away and not exactly yourself. And we all have this experience, don't we? Who's been in a movie? Who, went, who here has gone to a movie in the afternoon and it's so captivating and wonderful, you know, the movie starts at three and you get out at 5.15 and it's daylight and you go, oh, I forgot it was daylight. Who's had that experience? Because you're caught up in the movie. And who's read a book and looked up and said, I'm two hours past my bedtime? A novel, captivating novel, most of you have, good. And who here has ever been involved in an athletic contest and in the middle of contest, you had the feeling if somebody tapped you on the shoulder and said, excuse me, sir, what is your name? It would take you a second to remember. Who's been in that, who's had that? Okay, good. So that's, that's being, those are all being carried away kinds of experiences. And, we're supposed to be, we're blessed to be carried away with our spouse, to be drunk with love, to be filled with love. To say it a different way, Thomas Aquinas said, sexuality is always evil because it produces an excess of pleasure that keeps the mind from contemplating God. Now Aquinas was a monk, but I think he was right. But I think he was wrong. He's right that when a husband and wife come together, it's so wonderful that you kind of forget everything else, including, you know, you can't really have devotions simultaneously, right? So I think he's right about that. But I think he's wrong to say it's evil. 
It's good. It's God's good gift, and we're supposed to stay together. And we're supposed to stay together with the wife of our youth. So, I mean, look at me. I'm a person of a certain age. There's Larry Edison in the back there. We knew each other when we were like, you know, 25 and 29. And, you know, we look at each other's faces, and we go like, we, you don't look like you looked when we were in seminary together. I look at him, and he looks at me, and it's like, you look different. Same, kind of, sort of, but not much. And, and that's because I'm over 60 years old. And I'm just gonna say this, there are, you know there are no Mr. America or Miss America show, Mrs. America pageants for people who are over 60. Did you know that? That's because there is no man who is objectively handsome and there's no woman who is, you know, by the standards of whatever, beautiful at the age of 60. But my wife is beautiful to me. This seems like a sidebar, but it's not. You know what a dad joke is, right? A dad joke is a joke you tell your kids when they're 15 or 27, and they go like, Dad, that's such a dorky joke. It was funny when I was six. I'm 23 now. Why are you telling me this joke? Here's the answer. When a parent sees a child, he sees the 24-year-old, the 17-year-old right there, but a parent sees a child at all ages simultaneously. When I look at my 34-year-old daughter, I still see the five-year-old. I still see the 11-year-old and the 17-year-old and the two-year-old and the 22-year-old. And because I see all ages simultaneously, I still want to tell her jokes that were funny when she was seven. Because she's still seven. I know she's 34, but she's also seven. And she's also 15 and 24. And when I look at my wife, she's over 60, but she's also 22. And when I see her in certain times and places, I think you look exactly like you looked the day we got married. You're as beautiful to me as you ever were and you always will be. I will always see the 22 and the 27 and the 29 and the 34 and the 42-year-old you. And that's why you're the wife of my youth. And that's why I'm always going to love you and you're always going to be beautiful to me. And I will always be attracted to you. That's the way God wants it to be. We see each other and we want to stay together. We're imperfect, we're flawed, but we love each other. I read a book, and Jordan and I talked about this, called Stoner, it has nothing to do with marijuana. Um, it was about, a, it's a wonderful book that was ignored when it was published. I recommend it to you. It came out in 1969, it finally won an award in the year 2012. People just kept saying, read this book, read this book. And finally somebody, somebody read this sad and yet victorious book. And Stoner marries the wrong person. He marries a woman of the sort of a brittle beauty who doesn't know how to love him at all. She, doesn't, she wouldn't even know what love was. And uh, she's objectively beautiful. But he sees her in her beauty lying on the bed one night. Um, and he looks at her and he says... It says this, it says he felt a distant pity and reluctant friendship and respect and also a weary sadness for he knew that he would never again be moved by her as he once had been moved by her presence. She's objectively beautiful, they're 30 years old. She's objectively beautiful because she's so hateful to him, he cannot experience her as an attractive person. He sees it objectively. But he says, she'll never move me because she doesn't love me at all. And the counter, of course, is 
that our husband and wife should always be beautiful to us and always attractive to us because we know that she loves me and I love her. And that keeps us together. And when we love each other, as the years go by in our weaknesses and frailties and sins and failings, the reason why it's so blessed is because we're living according to the pattern that God has given us. And the pattern God gave us is that he loves us in our sins, our flaws, our ugliness, and he loves us with a covenantal love that will never die. And true familial love is like that. True marital love is like that. And therefore, a gift from God to us all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray for the men, the women, the children, the married, the single, the formerly married, uh, those who are grieving things that have gone poorly, even those who perhaps are having um, a bit of struggle in their marriage this very day. I, I thank you, Lord, that you show us the way by your covenantal, abiding, undying, forgiving, grace-filled, loving, patient eyes. May you rekindle eyes like that in us, for our husband, for our wife, for our future husband and wife. May you work in us what is good if someone here is never married and shall be. Lord, even for one whose marriage has ended, may we learn how to still have abiding, loving relationships. And Lord, we give you the praise. We thank you for forgiving us when we failed and for loving us through it all because of your covenant love for us in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.